Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Good morning once again. It is good to see those of you who have decided to stay in town, at least for this Sunday during the Christmas season. Uh, we are continuing our Advent series and today we're going to be in Luke's gospel, in, in the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, if you want to turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, someone around you probably does, and you introduced yourself just a second ago, so now you're friends, you can share a Bible, welcome to church, this is good. Um, I'm excited to get into this. I think that God has prepared a word specifically for us. I know that I was ministered to greatly in preparation for this, uh, this teaching today. I'm going to begin by reading the opening four verses of Luke's gospel. These serve as, as the prologue, and then we'll pray and then really dive into this together. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have, ha have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for the peace that you give. God, even this week, I'm grateful for the circumstances of my week that pushed me to lean into you and seek your peace. Your peace that is su sufficient to meet every need for every individual, for our communal needs, the universal need of humanity. God, we've come here now to hear you and your word. We've come to have our souls anchored by it, and we're asking that you would speak into the chaos and the uncertainty of our lives. That today, God, our eyes would see you and our hearts would know you. May your peace descend upon this place as your word is preached. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Luke begins his gospel by addressing a man named Theophilus. That's probably not the opening sentence you expected to hear for an Advent series, but I promise you it all fits together, okay? He starts by writing to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus is a Gentile. In Greek, his name means friend of God. And we get a little clue as to his prominence and nobility because he's referred to as most excellent Theophilus, and that's not just something that people throw around. Never been said of most excellent Eric. Just normal, kind of boring Eric, and I'm, I'm cool with that. But Theophilus is somebody who's pretty impressive. And we're told in verse four that Theophilus was taught some things concerning Christianity. That's not me using very simplified language. That's literally what Luke says. He says that you may have uh, certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. That word things is the plural form of the Greek word logos or logos. Same word that we see in John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word logos, logos, speaking of Jesus. So here's what's really cool, okay? Theophilus had learned some things, lowercase l, logos, about the capital L, logos, Jesus. He'd been taught the words and the deeds of Jesus. 
But now, although he'd heard the gospel, and although he's familiar with Jesus, he's uncertain. You see, right there in verse four, that word certainty, it influences everything that Luke writes in his gospel, and in particular, the opening few chapters that we'll get into in just a second. Now, we're not told the reason for Theophilus' uncertainty, but I think he's in a place where many of us can relate. Some of you may have landed in that space today. You're familiar with Jesus, you're just uncertain about him. Familiar with the stories of Christ coming into the world, but you're uncertain if you're really gonna trust that and believe in that and lean into that today. Now, uncertainty is a part of life. If you've ever believed in anything before, you know that it is not uncommon to experience some degree of doubt and uncertainty. And we are capable as, as human people in many of life's choices and circumstances of handling those uncertainties. Whether it's school or job, relationship, the future, we as people are capable of showing tremendous resilience in navigating the waters of uncertainty with varying degrees of success. But when it comes to uncertainties about spiritual things, about God things, for a great many people, those uncertainties are less easy to navigate. And I think it's because a lot of people convince themselves of some untruths about God in those uncertainties. Like that they have this feeling, this presupposition that like if I have uncertainties about God or the things of God, then he's gonna respond with harshness to me. He's gonna bring punishment or he's gonna withhold blessing or he's gonna push me away. And maybe that's where you landed this, this morning and I wanna tell you something that I hope just blows those negative thoughts and feelings and fears and emotions away from your soul. That is not how God treats people in their uncertainties and doubts. In fact, I would argue that the best glimpse we have in all of scripture for how God responds to people who are in that position of uncertainty and doubt is in the interaction between Jesus and his disciple named Thomas. If you've read the Gospels before, you're probably aware of Thomas. He's become immortally monikered as Doubting Thomas. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to some of his disciples. And these, these disciples were excitedly telling Thomas about how they'd just seen the risen Lord Jesus. That he was alive and victorious over sin and over death. And Thomas goes, because that's universal in any language. <laughs> he says, well, unless I see the holes in his hands and, and I put my fingers in them, I will not believe. Despite the testimony of his brothers, despite the testimony of these guys he spent the last three years of his life with, he remains skeptically uncertain. Well, the next time the disciples are all gathered together, Jesus shows up and he looks at Thomas and you can imagine the tension in the room and the other disciples going, oh, you're gonna get it. But Jesus looks at Thomas and he goes, Thomas, come here, look at my hands. Put your fingers here where the nails went. In the midst of Thomas's doubt and uncertainty, Jesus invites him close. He doesn't push Thomas away. He doesn't rebuke or chastise Thomas for his doubt or his uncertainty. Instead, he invites the doubter to come close and witness the reality, witness the truth for himself. Church, this interaction sets the precedent for how God deals with people in our doubts and uncertainty. He does not cast off or push away or disown. By his grace, he invites the uncertain to come close 
And there he meets us with compassion. There he meets us with grace and truth so that we would encounter him and be certain of who he really is, not who we have imagined him to be. That's the framework that has shaped Luke and is shaping his gospel about certainty. Because what we find here in the prologue of his gospel is Luke adopting the posture of God, Luke adopting the posture of Jesus with Thomas. He's writing to his friend Theophilus, who is uncertain, and he's crafted this well-researched, well-constructed gospel concerning all things Jesus, concerning those things for which Theo is uncertain. And Luke says, I want you to come close and take it all in, my friend. I want you to witness the truth of Jesus for himself and be moved from this place of uncertainty to certainty. From lacking peace to finding great peace. And it's that framework of certainty amidst uncertainty that shapes the narrative. It's the theme that is predominantly established in these opening two chapters that we'll get into in just a second. This is, this is the narrative where Luke crafts the birth story of Christ, but he does something unique to all the Gospels. He purposefully interweaves the narrative of the birth of John the baptizer and Jesus, and their stories constantly do this, and he's painting this beautiful portrait, this beautiful mosaic to bring you and I, lovingly, I guess, confront you and I with a question at the end of all of this, to bring us to a decision point about our own uncertainties. So here's where I wanna start. We're gonna start in verse 26 of chapter one, and I wanna read the birth story, the birth account of Christ, starting with Mary, and then we'll jump from, the end, from verse 38 to chapter two. I know it sounds crazy, but just trust me, this'll be good. Verse 26, it says there, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and he will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her whom was barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Chapter two, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world which should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the lineage and house of David. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In our hearts, in the hearts and minds of many people, this is where the Christmas story begins, right? In a stable, in Bethlehem, because there was no room for them in the inn. 
But in reality, the Christmas story finds its origins not in a stable, but in a garden. Not in Bethlehem at this time, but in a garden in Eden thousands of years before. In Eden, the first promise of Emmanuel, of God sending a savior to come and redeem humanity is uttered. Genesis tells us that God, when God created all things, that all things were good, that all things were just as they should be. Creation was functioning in perfect order and harmony according to God's beautiful design. Humanity walked in this unbroken relationship with God, being unafraid and unashamed, fully known by God and enjoying the safety of that. But in an instant, all of that changed when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's good instruction. God said to them, do not eat of this tree, but they rebelled against God's good instruction. They took the forbidden fruit and ate it, and in that moment, sin entered the world. Their fellowship with God that was characterized by being known and being safe was, was broken. The peace of God that had been established in the garden that presided over them, the, the shalom that we read about all throughout scripture was vandalized. Creation is thrown into chaos. And what flood the human heart is this, this nasty concoction of darkness and depravity, fear and shame, selfishness and rebellion. And humanity is separated from God. The situation is, is dire. It's meant to be communicated in a way that we, we see it as being dire. And then right then is where we get the first glimpse of the gospel. Amidst the darkness, in this dire state of, of humanity, God speaks a word of hope. God gives a foretaste of his eternal plan of salvation that is bound up in the coming of his son that we just read about in Luke chapter 2. In Genesis 3.15, as God is pronouncing a curse upon the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is commonly referred to as like the first gospel. It's the verse where God announces that sin will not have the final say that the schemes of Satan will not prevail because God's promised savior is coming. He will be born to redeem humanity. And here's what I love about God in this moment. From the very first second of our need for rescue and deliverance from sin, God's promise of a savior of rescue was there. I love how this section is worded in the Jesus storybook Bible. It should be on the screens for you there. It says, before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve saying this darkness of sin will not always be so. I will come and rescue you. And when I do, I'm gonna do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. That's the foundation of the Christmas story. And as the rest of the Old Testament unfolds, God continues to raise up prophets people who speak on his behalf to the world. And these prophets give whispers and hints about the coming of the promised savior of God. And what Luke has done in crafting his narrative of the birth of Christ, he comes telling the story bearing everything I just said in mind. And in crafting the Christmas story, he does something brilliant. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And he, he in his telling of the story, he intentionally 
drops in or sprinkles in phrases and references from the Old Testament. Phrases and references that speak directly to God's promised Savior. And the reason he does this is so that every reader, whether it's you or I or Theophilus, that we would see with biblical certainty that this baby boy born to Mary and Joseph is the Emmanuel from Matthew's gospel, is the word Logos from John's gospel, is God's promised savior from Genesis chapter three. He does this so that we would be filled with certainty to see that this child is the realization of our collective hope. He's the fulfillment of the prophetic words in the Old Testament, yes, but he's the solution for what has gone wrong in the garden, and he's the solution for what has gone wrong in each one of us. And so he, he sprinkles three prophecies that we'll put on the screens and we'll tease out a little bit. These three prophecies are meant to instill certainty into Theophilus, who had learned some things, but he's asking for a little bit more. He wants to be taken a little bit deeper. So the first prophecy is that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. This was first prophesied in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. This was the passage that was quoted by the chief priests and the teachers when Herod asked about the birth of the Messiah in Matthew's gospel. This is what they quoted to him, so that he would know where the Messiah was supposed to be born, which led him to the, the Bethlehem massacre, massacre where he murdered all males under two years old, so that he could try to put an end to God's promised Savior coming into the world. Well, Luke casually sprinkles that in there and says, in verses four through seven of my gospel, we get to see Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And just so we don't think, okay, great, so he, he happened to be born in Bethlehem. Luke goes a little bit further and he says, also the Savior, will be, the Savior will be from the lineage of King David. He'll be the rightful heir to the throne. So at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, who, who is now named Israel, He's looking out at all of his sons and he's pronouncing prophetic blessings over each of them. And to his son Judah, who has his own tribe at this point, he says, God's promised savior is going to come through you and your lineage of people. And from there, that language gets much more intentional as you read on in the, the Old Testament, but particularly Samuel the prophet. In 2 Samuel, uh, verses, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, Samuel says to David, who's from the tribe of Judah, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, in, in the opening part of, of Luke 1, 26 through 30, and then here in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, he goes, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He's of the lineage of David. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And then he nails in that third prophecy, that the Savior would be born of a virgin. This was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We looked at this in detail last week. But this, pro this prophecy is fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, 26 through 32. What we see Luke doing with those prophetic utterances in this narrative 
It's like he, he grabs hold of the volume knob and he turns up the volume on these Old Testament whispers. So that as Christ comes on the scene, you and I are drowned out by the sound of, it's him, it's him. He, he, he turns up that, that volume knob to show us that these Old Testament prophecies stand behind the events that he's describing. That these prophecies are beyond the bounds of human manipulation. Like, you can't, you can't control where you're born. You can't even control what family you're born into, although some of us are like, I would like to do that. And what's more, you, you can't control that your mom is a virgin. Like, these are things that are just outside of your control. So in, in setting up these three prophecies, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is not a manipulator of these circumstances in order to make himself look like the Messiah. He is God's promised savior. Now, he writes those things with certainty, but Luke does something unique, and he kind of pivots, and so I want to pivot with him. Because it's inside of this story that, that Luke, deliber Luke deliberately directs our attention toward Mary. Did you see that? Like, so much of this story in chapter one and chapter two is fixated on her and her response to these prophecies, her response to the message that the angel told her, though you're a virgin, you're going to conceive and bear a child and he'll be the son of God. Just for a second, let's try to put ourselves in her shoes. Like, that's a lot to absorb. Not only are you gonna bear a son without having sex, but it's gonna be God. <laughs> and we're adults and we chuckle at that and go, I don't know how to handle that. She's like a young teenager. I was a moron as a young teenager. I cannot imagine how I would have tried to process some of this information. But here's what I love. In processing these things, Mary just goes, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I like her question a lot. You see, she's not so much questioning if these things are gonna happen, she's questioning what the first step is gonna be. It's like this, though she's uncertain, she trusts God enough to take one step forward. And that's our first little nudge from Luke to Theophilus, from Luke to us. If you're in your uncertainty, do you trust God enough to just take one step forward? I want you to tuck that in your mind as we pivot to chapter one. And now look at the birth of John the baptizer and the events surrounding that. Now his birth story is way too long to read. All of chapter one is 80 verses, and I will not do that to you today. So I'm gonna summarize the majority of this, but I'll read certain sections. I invite you to read along with me. They'll be on the screens for us so that we can fill out the pertinent details. So back to chapter one of Luke's gospel. What's interesting about Luke is that in telling the births of Jesus and John, he places his authorial focus not on Jesus and John. In telling their narratives, he places his authorial focus on Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Zechariah, the father of John. And he presents in each one of their responses to God, he builds out this juxtaposition of belief and unbelief. He creates a dynamic inside the text that's meant to unsettle us in our uncertainties. Oh, it's so good how he does this. So we won't read it, but let me summarize the first 17 verses. There's a priest named Zechariah who serves in the temple. He and his wife Elizabeth are old. They're advanced in age. They're like the New Testament version of Abraham and Sarah. They're old, they're righteous people. They serve God, they love God, but they cannot have children. She's barren. And they pray for God 
to help them conceive, and yet nothing happens. Well, one day, Zechariah is selected to go serve in the holy place, and he has to go alone and burn incense to God while everyone else is outside of, of the temple praying for him. And as he's burning incense, he's met by the angel Gabriel, the same Gabriel that spoke to Mary. And Gabriel tells him God has heard his prayer, that he and his wife will conceive and have a son. And as, as if that isn't great enough news, he goes on and says, this son will be the forerunner of God's promised savior. This son will be used by God to make people's hearts ready to receive the Messiah. And his name will be John. Again, just like we did with Mary, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Zechariah. Our sandals, I guess, of Zechariah. You would think his response to this would be elation. Because finally, after years of barrenness, after years of pain and heartache and sorrow and loneliness, God has heard his prayer. Not only is his wife going to have a baby in her old age, but this baby is going to be instrumental in God's plan of salvation. His child is going to prepare the way of God's promised Savior in the spirit and power of Elijah. That, that's enough, even reading and saying this today, to rouse my own spirit. But look at his response in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I love that, by the way. Anyways, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people who are waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay at the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. He responds to this wonderful news, this impossible news, with uncertainty and unbelief. And God, in answer to, in reply to his uncertainty and unbelief, he makes Zechariah mute, unable to form in utter words. If I can quote the 90s secular theologian Gwen Stefani of the band, no doubt. God says, don't speak. Now, this is an important point to make, okay? <laughs> Not the Gwen Stefani thing, this part what I'm about to say. <laughs> Zechariah's muteness was not punitive. It was corrective. This wasn't God punishing Zechariah. This is God saying to him, my, my boy, you talk too much. So I'm gonna teach you how to listen. Son, in your unbelief and uncertainty, I want you to come close and observe what I'm doing here. This is reminiscent of that posture of Jesus and Thomas. He invites him to come close and just sit in silence and observe and see. And so that's what Zechariah does. For nine months, he's plunged into the depths of himself to ponder with God, to observe and see what God is doing. And you gotta wonder, like, was this an overreaction to, to make him mute? Because on the surface, his question looks really similar to Mary's, doesn't it? I mean, they both ask how. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? They both say how and then state their present situation. It's not like it's that different. But she's honored and he's muted. Well, the reason for this differential treatment boils down to one word, belief. 
In verse 20 of chapter one, the angel Gabriel says, Zechariah, because you did not believe. You see, whereas Mary asked her question and showed that she's trying to understand the process, Zechariah wants proof. She's willing to walk forward even though she doesn't understand all the details, but he wants God to do a sign that will like convince him before he makes up his mind. Like, God, prove it to me that this is worth it. So there's a distinction in their responses. And, and we're meant to like look at Mary's response once again as we contrast it to Zechariah. I mean, look at what she says in verse 38. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it, be, let it be to me according to your word. I kid you not, I was brought to tears reading this this week. Because Mary's words here are, are comparable to what she says in John chapter two at the wedding of Cana. You remember when the wine runs out? She grabs Jesus and like drags him over to the servants. And then she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I've, I've grown up in church. I've always read that and understood that to be a bossy mom, like telling her son to do something to fix it because there's a problem that needs to be fixed. But in reality, these are the words of, of not a bossy woman who's trying to control a situation. These are the words of, of a woman who some 30 years later is still entrusting herself to submitting herself to the authority and word of God. What she does in Cana, what she says in Cana, is almost identical in posture and verbiage to what she says here in Luke chapter one. Let it be according to your word. And then in John two, whatever he says, do it. I've learned from experience, we trust the one who speaks. Okay, so Zechariah is mute. Mary's walking forward in belief. And fresh off this encounter with the angel, she runs off to go visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who just so happens to be the wife of Zechariah. And as soon as Mary arrives and says, hey cousin, this is what we read in verse 41 of Luke chapter one. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, that's John. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now let's, let's think about this from a very natural, very cultural perspective for a second. There's a young teenage girl who's unmarried, pregnant, and her fiance is not the father. And her older cousin Elizabeth is a woman of great reputation whose husband serves in the church. And she doesn't express any concern or disappointment with Mary showing up on her doorstep like this. She doesn't even utter an accusation of, of Mary being like this ancient world hussy or anything like that. Instead, she blesses Mary. She bestows the blessing upon Mary that Zechariah's muteness prevented him from giving to her. And the moment that she hears Mary's voice, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. She's filled with certainty that the child in Mary's womb is the promised savior of God, is God's own son. And both of these women erupt in praise. Praise that, that Mary is with child. Praise that a savior is coming. Praise that God keeps his promises to Elizabeth and to his people. And all the while, Zechariah's at home and he sees this. Our story shifts back to him in verse 56. He's still silent. He's still mute. 
He's been this way for nine months, and this is what we read in verse 56. Mary remained with her, uh, Elizabeth, about three months, and then she returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, when they came to circumcise the child, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. For nine months, Zechariah has been silent, unable to speak. He's marked by that act of disbelief or unbelief in the word and promise of God. And throughout these nine months, he has seen God discharge his faithfulness again and again. His, his older, barren wife has become pregnant. Impossibly, she's conceived. He's no doubt heard Mary's story since she stayed with him for three months. And all this time, he's been being drawn closer. He's being drawn closer to the Lord, observing what God is doing. And now God gives him the second chance. And what unlocks his mouth is the act of writing down that his son will be named John. What unlocks his mouth is him going, I should have listened to you back in the temple, God. I'm certain that you know what you're doing. And it was at this moment where Zechariah's trust in the promise of God takes root. And God opens his mouth. And like Mary, like Elizabeth, what immediately springs forth from Zechariah's lips is blessings and praise to God. Something that only Luke writes about in all of his gospels. He, he alone shows the, the poetry and the musicality that accompanies the Annunciation of Christ. Church, here's where I wanna end this this morning. In weaving together these narratives, in, in constructing this framework of certainty amidst uncertainty, Luke is, has been presenting a question in the subtext to each one of us, to Theophilus, but also to each one of us. In your uncertainties about Jesus, about God, about the things of God, are you gonna respond like Zechariah or are you gonna respond like Mary? Like, what will you do with your uncertainty? That's the question being begged of us this morning as we come to this text. You see, these opening chapters were written in such a way that would illuminate the great links to which God went to bring certainty to a broken world and to an uncertain people. Certainty that his son is the promised savior that we need, that he alone is the solution for what has gone wrong in the world, for what has gone wrong inside of each of us. And as you read on throughout the Gospel of Luke, something I encourage you to do as an individual or as a family or with your friends the rest of this month, as you read on and you encounter the words and the works of Jesus, you find that with him you can be certain about a great many things. Things like this. These are things we find in, in Luke's gospel that speak to our souls. There's no brokenness in your life that Jesus is un unable to repair. Yeah. There's no damage that you've done that Jesus is unable to restore. There's no person so messed up that Jesus cannot repurpose you for his glory. There's no person so spiritually dead that Jesus cannot breathe new life into. You see, we come to God and our uncertainties about God with 
these trumped up ideas, these imagined ideas of what we think he's gonna be like, how we think he's gonna respond when he just says, come close, I want you to see for yourself. And he's given us his word so that we'd encounter the person and work of Christ. If you walked into this building this morning uncertain about Jesus, the good news is you don't have to leave the same way. The invitation of God to Zechariah, of Jesus to Thomas, of Luke to Theophilus, is that we would respond with belief. Belief in Jesus and receive life and peace. And Dev led us through this earlier, that this is the, the Advent Sunday where we celebrate the peace that God has brought into the world through his son. And the message of scripture is that God has made a way for you to experience his peace. And we talk about this often. There's the peace of God and the peace with God. Well, Romans chapter five tells us that in order to experience the peace of God, you need to be at peace with God. And peace with God is only found through faith in Jesus, God's promised savior from Genesis three, who at the cross paid the penalty for our sin and broke the power of sin's dominion over us. This is a small taste of what Luke does in his opening gospel. And this is the good news that we can have certainty and peace in who Christ is, amen? Amen, amen. let's pray. God, we thank you that you speak to us like a father to his children. You care about us where we're at, and God, we love the certainty that you give us in your word. Certainty that means we don't have to blindly grope through, through life like a bunch of fools. Jesus, you are the promised savior from Genesis 3, who has come to redeem, who alone is worthy of our worship and our trust, and so Spirit of God, Please do a work in our hearts as we respond now with communion and worship. Do a work in our hearts that I am unable to do. Change our hearts. Make us alive to the beauty of the gospel. Bring unity and peace to this place as we pursue Christ together. Jesus, you are the source of our hope, the source of our joy, the source of our peace. Not just at Christmas, but every single day. It's to you that we look and sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.